Christ speaks to his church. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bears twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the Tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand buckwards, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the day break, and until the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh, and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Come with me from Lebanon, my spouse, with me from Lebanon. Look from the top of Amana, from the top of Shenir and Hermon, from the lion's dens, from the mountains of the leopards. Thou hast ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. Thou hast ravished my heart with one of thine eyes, with one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love, my sister, my spouse. How much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices. Thy lips, O my spouse, drop as the honeycomb. Honey and milk are under thy tongue, and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. My plants are as an orchard of pomegranates with pleasant fruits, camphire with spikenard, spikenard and saffron, Calamus and cinnamon with all trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes with all of the chief spices, a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. And so on reads uh, the living word of our God. The Song of Solomon um, is a series of uh, poetic verses in sections uh, the chapter numbers don't always perfectly align with the movement of those sections. Some of those sections cross over slightly. Uh, we will be looking at uh, an overview of a, a decent amount of chapter 4, um, verses uh, 15 onwards would be another sermon begun, especially the, the truth of verse 16 about the wind blowing upon the orchard and garden. That would be for another time. But we look at uh, this section here um, in chapter uh, 4. Um, we come to the Lord's Supper uh, next Lord's Day. And a, a good practice of the ministry here is to go through the, the Song of Solomon. How fitting it is uh, before God and, and how helpful for each of us as believers uh, to do that. It's a gem in the scripture, a jewel with a, a deep glory in it, a beautiful a piece of scripture that's actually about communion. It's about meeting with God. Now, this was written um, about Christ and his church. When it was <laughs> written at the time, the author may have known Solomon may have known something of the messianic focus um, of, of this truth of communion between God and his people, but certainly the Jews considered it uh, to be about God redeeming his bride, and it was read at Passover and still is. If you go to a Jewish home uh, today in Israel and they're going to celebrate Passover that week, this song will be read in the home because it's seen as Jehovah marrying himself to a sinful people, taking them out of Egypt and leading them through the wilderness to the promised land. Now, praise be to God, we know a lot more of what that means. And it isn't just about the soil that's being fought over right now. 
in Israel. It is a redemption from all eternity, an election, a blood application of his only begotten son, taking us from this world of Egypt and worldliness and leading us to a permanent paradise, a true land that flows with milk and honey and riches and liberty, a permanent year of jubilee, heaven itself and the new heavens and the new earth, a redeemed creation. Now this is about that relationship that leads to all of these things. And we know that that is rooted, that it's specifically the Son of God that God sends to marry his people, that he is the beloved and that his elect, his people, are the bride. So how fitting then, as you come to a, a pilgrim tabernacle table, several times a year to gather around what is a royal table it might lack some of the spectacular things that human royalty would surround an event like that with but make no mistake it is a royal table and it is the royal family that will come here next week and sit around the table and drink of the royal cup and eat of the king's bread that is so that we will meet with Jesus next week. That's why we come next week. It's not simply to hear a good or elucidating sermon that teaches. It's not simply so that we will do things the, the, the right and reformed way. It's not to receive a little grace. It's not just to look briefly and say again, he died for me and I need nourished somehow by him. But I want you to see that you come to meet with him next week. He is visible next week. He is present next week at his table. He spreads the table. He hosts the table. He is the king of the table. And that table you sit at is there because of your own weakness, our weakness as pilgrims. Through this world, we wane, we languish. Our soul exercises become weak. Our prayers are affected. Our affections are not stable. They're not always growing strong. We're, we become tired. We become disillusioned. We become tricked by the enemy. We become blinded. Lots of things can happen in our life. And this is here. It's here every week you hear it preached. And praise God for that. But the Lord's table is given with a more vivid, clear, tangible, direct representation of him. He left these two symbols, these signs and seals, not just to image himself but to seal himself on your soul in the eating and drinking of the supper. So the king is here with his sign, his insignia, and his seal. This song is about that communion, which is why it is often so much, so often been employed for the Lord's Supper itself, because it seems to marry so well uh, with that event. And in this song of communion, of union and communion. I'm sure your minister has shown you already that there are deviations and separations in this song that are written by the Holy Spirit to show us what the Christian life is like. That she has been brought to her king, selected by her king, wooed and, and um, dated by her king, unto an engagement and then a marriage and a covenant marital relationship and that that relationship is affected by separations that are always caused by her side never by his they're always caused by her by me and by you you see that in this song in chapter 1 verse 16 you see that humility uh, being worked uh, into her um, in chapter in chapter one, um, 
Verse 5, I am black, but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Not just poetic. I am dark, but lovely, she says. I am black, but comely. She's aware of a beauty Christ has wrought in her, but she is aware of a darkness. She starts to describe that the brothers, maybe even people in the church or even church officers or officers in the Jewish church, even in the Reformed church, they were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. Maybe your own family has done that if your family's unconverted. And you're trying to serve Christ and there's so much to do and so much to labor and so many duties. And you're out doing all of those and you're squeezed dry and there's only one drop left for Christ. And she says, I've been tanned by that in the vineyards. My own vineyard I've not kept. She has fallen. His love hasn't faltered. Hers has. You see in chapter 2, verse 14, in that failure at the beginning of chapter 2, he extols her beauties and calls her back. And he has to encourage her because she's hiding which is what we often do when we're in sin. Chapter 2, verse 14. He says to her, Oh, my dove. A dove is timid. A dove is easily startled. A dove flies away from other birds of prey. A dove hides. Oh, my dove. In the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see thy face. Let me hear thy voice. For sweet is thy voice, and thy face is comely. He has to tell her that as this Lord's Day coming, he will have to say that to you again. And he will have to say it to me. Because when we look at our spiritual countenance in the mirror, we do not see undefiled beauty. We do not hear a sweet voice. We hear our sin, don't we? Our unbelief or our complaining or our, um, our lack of zeal for the Lord. And then our, our spiritual condition, it's marred by our falling short of God's holy law, of our prayers, and so on. We'll come to these things in a moment. She is aware of these time and time again. I am dark. I've been in the vineyards. I, I am tanned. I've been, I've been scorched in, 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 the, in the noonday sun working hard. And I've not kept my own garden of soul. I'm hiding in the rock from my beloved. I tremble. I've, I've failed him. Why would he want me? He shouldn't want me. He's, he always comes back and has to reassure her. The famous verse in verse 15, that the foxes caused this, that she allowed foxes into her vineyard, into her spiritual life, into her congregation, into her private prayer closet, into her schedule. She allowed the foxes to come in. And at first she noticed the foxes and thought they're an inconvenience. And she had her eye on the foxes. And in the end, the foxes do what? They spoil the vines. You see the separation time and time again. The darkness of the night of chapter 3, that she awakes and is far from him and panics and is in great distress to find him. Only his sovereignty makes him found. She can't find him by herself there's a separation that then must be rectified which he rectifies and then what your minister i pray and um, preached on last time which is him arriving on the day of espousals him announcing himself in glory and kingly grace and beauty and the scent of all the incense arriving as king to love her to marry her to be with her the king of Jerusalem, Solomon, marrying the shepherd girl. The mean, imperfect, imperfect shepherdess, King Solomon, the son of David, our saviour, the son of God, marries the imperfect, the sinner, and redeems them. These separations happen. Now, as we come into chapter 4, Christ comes um, at the close of chapter 3 as he approaches and he is seen in all of his glory and he looks at her and he beholds her and he describes her from his own heart and he says to her 
Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. Verse 7, thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. These two um, important verses. He sees her. Now, as we approach the table and we prepare, uh, we anticipate the table. And I want you to come to the table next week with great anticipation to meet him. Why? Because when he's with you at the table and loves you and seals himself to you and communes with your soul at the table, if you are in Christ and you are a genuine, repentant, humbled sinner, this is what he says of you. You are fair, my love. You are fair. There is no spot in thee. Now he says this, and there is an immediate tension in our heart, a response, because we know that he ultimately, in, in a certain sense, is the only one that's spotless, holy, harmless, undefiled. And that the bride of Christ, you and I, we have spots on us, blemishes. We wouldn't be Christian if we didn't know that. And we're about to see that the, the poor in spirit, the mourning, the awareness of sin is actually part of that beauty. We're about to see that. He looks at us nonetheless. And he doesn't want you crawling to the table. Uh, I'm not saying don't crawl to the table at all. Um, I need to finish that thought. He doesn't want you to crawl, the crawl to the table in terror, thinking that it's extremely difficult for him to love you. It's not difficult for him to love you. And we'll see in the things I'm about to bring out why it's not difficult for Jesus to love you if you're his, in spite of your imperfection and sin. He will love you. The reason I said I'm not going to say don't crawl to the, the table is that I've seen someone do it. So crushed they were by their sin, weeping and pushing themselves to the table for, for a sense of unworthiness. Whatever the Lord does in, in, in your heart, people do weep at the Lord's table. It's right to weep at the Lord's table. When someone is so willing to love you when you've so failed them and they say, I forgive you. Let's begin again. Rise up from here and walk in my strength. That does bring tears. But I don't want you coming to the table rigidly, not confident in his love. Our sin will do that to us. It's not a mistake that it does it to us. It's a natural progression of thought. When, when we do fall away from him, there is a sense of failure. I have wronged him. But he, through the Holy Spirit here, gives me um, in his word the, 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 the repetitive authority to say to you that whenever you're like that, he wants you to turn to him again, confident in his love. Jesus wants that, that confidence, that trust, and not to, to, to worry about him and worry that he will cast you out and reject you. This is what this is. He is describing her this way because she lacks that confidence. She is not confident in his love towards her because of her failure. He's aware of the failure, but he still says, you are my bride and you are fair. Now, why can Christ say this of us as we approach the Lord's table? I want to bring out yes, two things here. The bride's beauty, as Christ says it here, and the beloved's desire, secondly. And as we take up the bride's beauty, I think there are, there are three aspects in which Christ can truthfully look at the born-again contrite sinner and say to them, you are fair, you are beautiful, and I love you. Three aspects. And it helps us to think about it this way. Um, the first two are 
what would be called in our theology um, righteousness imputed and righteousness imparted or as we know them in other ways justification and sanctification but righteousness imputed and imparted let's let's take the first righteousness imputed this is foundational and key to this relationship that christ delights in a contrite believer's beauty because he's atoned for their sin and that is the foundation of their beauty in other words they were ugly as david was in psalm 51 but he said wash thou me and i shall be whiter than the snow my iniquities blot out thy face hide from my sin create a clean heart lord renew a right spirit me within these are wonderful things that that the work of christ uh, on the cross his work of redemption is something that blots out sin that atones for it words we use in our confessional understanding such as atonement and expiation atonement being pacifying sin uh, g giving something that will bear its wrath and exhaust the righteous anger for the law breaking so that it's burned up and it pacifies and reconciles it brings together that's what atonement means at one meant years two here in song of solomon sin comes between always on her side sin comes into my life and yours um we lay off our spiritual exercises uh your pastor was saying this morning or someone was saying in a prayer that our hearts can be colder than it is outside in december or january now that that's true and it, what's surprising is how quickly it, it can happen just just takes a few weeks when you've built up a year of closeness, just takes a few weeks. Now that sin comes in between. But the blood of Christ makes atonement. It brings together and reconciles. It's a covering, which in the Bible, in the Old Testament, is what that word means. I actually think it's in this song. I didn't look it up for the sermon. But in chapter 2, when she says, My beloved is to me a bundle of campfire upon my chest, it, it's the word for a covering. It's the, the basic word for atonement. Um, and, so, and some Puritan commentators think that there's something in that, that she has a bundle of atonement hanging on her neck. Well, it's, it's true of what, what he did on the cross, regardless of what uh, specifically uh, that verse means. When he... Uh, applied his blood on God's altar and it was poured out over the law on the golden mercy seat on the covering seat when God looks down at that temple and looks towards his law he sees Christ's heart in the ark of the covenant with a law perfectly fulfilled and that blood covering the law he, God looks at it and it's fulfilled and the blood cleanses and blots out the sin. It covers it. Expiation means um, to lift off the sin. That something's there that needs paid and to expiate is to remove it, to lift it off you. That's the foundational reason that Jesus can look at us and say you are beautiful that god the father looks at us and says you are beautiful because the believer is united to jesus christ he's in christ that's the way paul always puts it right every time he says it he the believer is elect in him in ephesians he is justified in him he is we have redemption in him. We are acceptable in him. We are made alive together with him. We are brought near in him. He, he's made peace. He has loved us, Paul says, in him. He, the Father has loved us in him. All, we are always viewed 
in him. You look at the bride and the bride is part of a couple. The bride has the surname of the husband. They're a unit. And the bride is in him. And when the law searches, and when justice searches, it always sees us in him. And the father looks at us. He looks at ones that he has elected in his son from all eternity that he purposed to atone for. When the father looks upon us, he sees the work of Christ that redeemed us. And it's not simply that, um, that somehow God just attached us to Jesus. And there's this thing then called in him. And by a trick of the route of God's sight, he says, oh, they're, they're in him. When we are in him, he has, his righteousness has been transferred to you. You're not just looking up to where he is and saying, look at that righteousness. Look at the perfect life he lived, admiring it from afar. That wouldn't save you. In Christ, you have that righteousness. It's yours. Now, it's God's righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness because of what it is. But it's yours. You have it. It has been imputed to you. That's the righteousness Jesus worked out in his active obedience. We always we focus so much at the supper, especially in Scotland, on the, the passive obedience of Christ. The, he is receiving the wrath of God on the cross. Now glorious that is. He is receiving that, and that, that punishes my sin. But there isn't so much focus on the act of obedience of Christ that he lived a perfect life up until that moment that's transferred to you. You can't be saved without it. I, rem I remember reading Robert Murray McShane's diary, and there's one day that this occurred to him strongly, and it changed his outlook on a lot of things. And he wrote in his diary, it was a blessed day. I was given to think more upon not Christ's passive obedience for me, but his active obedience. Not that he died for me, but that he lived for me and then died for me. And it gave him peace. Why? Because we bow down in prayer or we come to the table or we come to worship and we say, look at my prayer life this week. Or look at the state of my love or my graces. Look at my patience and self-control and faithfulness. Look at my words. Most of them were a waste. Or the way I witnessed. Or I, I was bad-spirited towards another brother or sister in Christ. Or I wasn't content in the Lord. Or there's no power of grace in my life. And I don't see revival. I don't see conversions. And there just doesn't seem to be anything. And what do I have? And I come before the Lord of glory. Well, McShane would say this. My prayers. Jesus prayed the perfect prayers and they're on your account. You're not praying to impress God or to reach the great standard of prayer. He prayed those prayers and they were imputed to you. But I don't love as I ought. He loved as he ought. And that was imputed to your life. I spoke unkindly, sinfully, Jesus never sinned with his lips. And I want you to know that that perfect speech is on your account. His patience, his wisdom, his seeking of the lost, his love for his disciples, his perfect family life, his love for his father, his long nights on the mountain, with his father, his selflessness, his complete lack of the fear of man. He did all of that 
and that was transferred to your account. I did not do God's will. I deviated from God's will. I've sinned. Jesus never did. And that perfect keeping of God's will is on the believer's account. What Paul calls the righteousness of God has been revealed. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith in Jesus Christ, he says. The righteousness of God. Now that's there and Jesus has given it. So when he comes to his church and when he looks at the believer alone in their prayer room at home or he sees you at work or he's in your family right now and there's real difficulty or conflict, Jesus can look honestly at a believer and say, you are fair. Why? Because he wove that robe of righteousness. And the prophet Isaiah says he has given unto us a robe of righteousness and a garment of salvation. Jesus said, didn't he? He said, he told that parable of everyone's in the wedding, everyone's at the festival, everyone's at the Lord's Supper, every, everyone's at the table above in heaven. And then he sees someone that doesn't have a wedding garment. He says, how did you get in here? And he didn't know what to say. So he cast him out. Now, you are coming next week with a wedding garment. The righteousness of an eternal God who cannot look upon iniquity. And he's come to you in mercy, he delights in mercy. And he elected you before you were born. And he rooted you in Jesus Christ before you were born, if you're his. He knew you then by name. He knew every action, thought, and word. He knows your sin much more than you know it. But he cleansed you in Jesus Christ. He sent his son to the cross. He offered him up and delivered him up for our transgressions. He did not spare his own son. And he gave you a robe of righteousness. And you can come to the table next week with a righteousness imputed, with a robe. And he says, it's fair, it's beautiful. It gleams with the perfections of the life of my son. And it's like my son. And it's yours and I've given it to you. Come to the appointed feast. Have I not provided you the garments to come? You are fair, my love. Now you see it come out in the words that uh, as, as you, as you, as you um, see the poetic description. Now I'm not going to go into these as some have done in the past and say each one stands for a different grace and so on. But there are things that are clear. Um, you see... Look, look, let, let, let's, let's, let's do it this way. Um, when Jesus looks at you with a righteousness imputed, that's not the only thing that's in this passage. The beauty that gleams from her is also the righteousness imparted. Sanctification. Now that's real. We often forget that we're very strong in justification and we don't want to be antinomian, so... We're not the ones that say, my sin doesn't matter. We want to not make that mistake, don't we? We want to, to, to really take sin seriously in our life. That we want to say with Paul that in my flesh there dwelleth no good thing. We want to, we want to say, I'm dark. And maybe not say after it, but lovely. We want to acknowledge our sin. That's very good. That's very important. But the sanctification must be acknowledged. And it's good if you're sensitive to sin. And I know uh, your pastor has been doing the Beatitudes. How important these are. The, the destitute in spirit. Those who mourn. Those who are aware of what they truly are. Now, that's, that's right. But you can be blind in... To, to, to the transformation that has actually occurred. To your words, your thoughts, your prayers, your desires, your love for the brethren, your cross-bearing, your service to the kingdom. Uh, compare yourself. It's a little bit dangerous in a way, but compare yourself to your pre-conversion. 
You could, you could say, well, I'm a lot better than them, so I must be really righteous. We're not. But it, it is good now and again to say, what would I be doing if Christ had not come into my life? What would I be saying right now? What would I be thinking? How would I be relating to people? What would I know? Would I have any love in my heart at all? Very, very good to, to make that quick comparison and say, hold on. There is some sanctification here. It's imperfect, and sin will still come out of the fountain. It comes out, but it's not the only thing that's coming out. There is a righteousness imparted. Uh, Paul um, himself says that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do at his good pleasure. <clears throat> Hebrews 13 says the same thing of, of him who loved us and um, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who works in us what is well-pleasing in his sight. Now, there are things that please God. They're not perfect, but it's not only, it's, it is not only the perfect delivery that pleases God. Repentance for sin pleases God. A word spoken in season pleases God. Love for your brother pleases Jesus. These things Please him. Now you see it coming out in the song that when you look at her beauty and you say the church isn't like that or I'm not like that. Well, well let's, let's take a, a, a few of these to build a brief picture. Um, the dove's eyes in verse 1. The dove isn't aggressive. It's not predatory. It, it's not looking for a fight. It's, it's gentle. It's meek. It's a symbol of innocence. It's a symbol of purity, mildness, yeah, mildness. Um, the teeth like a flock of sheep, the perfection of the mouth. Now he's betrothed here. This is uh, written by the Holy Spirit, but in the realm of human poetry and romance of a young couple. They're, they're, they're young and of that age of early marriage and he sees his beautiful bride and her face is, it's symmetrical, it's beautiful, it's attractive. That she doesn't have broken teeth or teeth knocked out. He looks and he says, "That's a she is beautiful." Well, the Holy Spirit is conveying something here. Puritans, of course, go into this and say, "With the teeth and the mouth, we eat, we eat and chew the Word of God, and that's how we receive God's Word and so on." These are good applications, but even at the at the initial level, you you what is true of the natural here is conveying something spiritual which is the parts, the compartments of your soul, your graces, your patience, your prayer, uh, your witness, um, your repentance. These parts and exercises of your Christian life, they should have some beauty in them. You should not be a hawk. You should be a dove. You should be mild. You your, your spiritual face should not be deformed. You should not be bitter, reactionary, discontent, complaining. You, 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 should, you should be able to rejoice and smile like her on her wedding day. And when, when you smile, there is a beauty to it. He goes on to speak of her mouth being lovely and so on, her lips. This is attractiveness and these are graces Pastor Rom is going through the Beatitude. There's a perfect synopsis from Jesus there of the Christian graces. Each of these is beautiful. Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. Why does he call them fruit? Because fruit is attractive. Fruit is beautiful. It's comely. It looks attractive to make you eat it. And when you eat it, it's good for you. It's pleasant. If you share fruit with someone else, you're not doing them harm. You're nourishing them. So the fruit of the Spirit is a fruitful, beautiful, uh, satisfying, nourishing thing. So the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit. Now notice here, though, that it's not her working up to be a great Christian that simply makes her beautiful. You'll notice that some of the things that are mentioned here are, they are mentioned of Jesus elsewhere um, in the song that um, there's a connection between his beauty and her beauty. Um, the dove's eyes, for example, in, in chapter 5, he's described uh, that way. 
Uh, verse 10, my beloved is white and ruddy, chiefest among 10,000. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by rivers of waters. And then washed in milk and fitly set. Now that's, that's intentional by the Holy Spirit. So she has doves' eyes and her mouth is beautiful and her teeth are fitly set. None of them lacks its twin. Then you look at her, her savior, he has doves' eyes. His teeth are healthy, white and fitly set. She is like him. He's the one with doves' eyes. So her beauty is rooted in his. It's not about saying, I'm righteous. Look, look how poor in spirit I am. No one has genuinely ever said that and meant it. No one has ever been proud of the fact they're poor in spirit. You're poor in spirit in proportion to your nearness to Jesus. You're humble with the dove's eye in proportion to your nearness to Jesus. And all these other graces. His cheeks are mentioned in chapter 5 verse 13. A bed of spices, sweet flowers. His lips are lilies, dropping sweet smiling myrrh. Hers are mentioned in chapter 4 verse 3. Lips like a thread of scarlet and thy speech is comely. Now all of these have their applications. You will look at your words before you come to the Lord's Supper. Are they myrrh? Are they sweet? Are they rich? Are they royal? Are they dignified? Are they true and honest and loving? Or are your words the words of the jackal? Or the hyena? Or the, hard, the hardened heart? Or are your words beautiful? Is your, are your spiritual graces healthy and when you look at your fellow believers in here is it the eye of the dove that's watching them or the eye of the eagle or the hawk are you mild and humble what's amazing is that jesus is humble it's one of the most amazing things about him i am meek lowly of heart you find rest for your souls well, in this sanctification, as he works in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, by the means of grace, by the Holy Spirit, what we find in chapter 4 is that he's bringing forth a beauty in her that flows from his own, that flows from the Holy Spirit. And her eyes um, beam that forth, her facial appearance beams that forth her neck in verse 4 shows the strength and beauty of Christ as she as a believer or as a church a congregation or denomination is it's not a pile of wood that's laying there all over the place there is a tower it is strong it's built for an armory on it hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. This is, Solomon goes here to a picture of the city as it existed at the time in, in encampments he made, but mainly Jerusalem. And he's saying the beautiful city, the holy city, where God's presence resides in the temple. It is a religious place and it has these battlements to defend it against attack. And the church is like that. And he applies this to his bride. And that, that, that is a beautiful thing for a woman of God is meant to be strong and has a neck of strength and has the, um, a dignified comport and um, the bucklers and so on and the shields give this idea that the believer is part of the Lord's army that the believer is on service for the king, that attacks come against the church and the believer, and there is a defense from the shield of faith and the armory of God. But she is walking this way. It's so strange if you said to your wife, you're like a, you're, you're like a military base in North Carolina. Uh, but this mattered then. Uh, the, there's great danger. And it's this wonderful 
amalgamation in the song of, of the delicacy of the beauty, the lips like scarlet, the dove, the lily. I mean, you can just crush a lily in your hand like that. But there she is, the church of Christ, the bride, with a neck like the Tower of David. That is part of her beauty. There's something in that woman of God. Uh, she is a woman of strength, a woman of valor. And she, uh, it's a spiritual strength, isn't it? It's that the, let's just take the, the, the woman in here, um, our, our sisters in Christ, that their strength comes from the Holy Spirit and it is strong, but it's always dove-like, you see. That's Jesus' strength. He's a dove, but he's very strong in the spirit. And he can take out the sword of his word and just cut very carefully to defend the church. Well, as much as the women are that way, we are all to be that way. Um, you see the, the final scene of that portrait in verse 5. Thy um, two breasts are like two young rows that are twins which feed among the lilies. Obviously, in human terms here, there's the physical beauty that he's portraying. But the whole thing together from verse 1 to 5, that final portrait there, it's just the idea of delightful beauty. The, the valley is lush. It's green. There are plants and lilies everywhere. It's quiet. You hear the birds chirping. And there are two young deer that are known for their beauty, the rose. And they're just feeding there in the grass. And you sit there and you say, this is beautiful. It is peaceful. It is shalom. This is the land of God. This delights my heart to be here. And Christ is telling his bride, his church, well, that's the way the church should be, the RPCNA, Dallas Reformed Presbyterian Church, your house and my house. And how often it's not like this. It is not the peaceful pastoral scene. It is it is not the sense of beauty and dove-likeness. There are uglinesses that come in. But I'm saying to you, brethren, that that's why we come to the table. Because the one who is beautiful, who is the king, uh, he shed his blood. He had his body broken to be given unto you. And to nourish you with the bread of life. And to nourish you with the life-giving spiritual vitality of the wine and the, the honor of being at the royal table with the king's cup and the king's bread tray and to eat with the king. And he says, come, come in here. Solomon is beautiful. Solomon's house of wine and his banqueting house is perfect and beautiful. But he draws us in that we who were dark and that went out into the night and the watchman found us and beat us. We who are, are battered or weary or weeping or we who were too slothful Whenever he knocked on the door and we didn't come and open it and to be with him. We go there mourning. We go there conflicted. We go there with some guilt. We go there knowing our failures. But he is sanctifying us through these means. In your prayer closet, every Lord's Day, four times a year in a special way at the Lord's Supper. Some people say, oh, don't make that about the Lord's Supper. It's just a memorial there's nothing special about it. What's the difference? We put it at the end of the service. It's no different than the preached word, really. Take, eat, this is my body. Your pastor doesn't say that to you every week. This is my body. Broken for you, singular. You. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, shed for many. Drink ye, all of it, for the remission of sins. And you're there and you say, remission of sins. All of my failures can be washed clean in a moment by him. And he can turn to me, having washed me and cleansed me and dressed me and, and reformed my soul and putting right those warped parts of the soul and he, he sanctifies you and changes you. And he says, you know, you are my image bearer. You are my bride and you are lovely. I 
delight in you. Righteousness imputed, righteousness imparted. The third thing is this. I, I'm going to have to uh, close uh, with the third thing here. I'll, I'll take up the second part of this sermon um, the, the next time I preach. But um, the third thing, the third aspect of this beauty is that uh, Christ sees the final result uh, when he's looking at us. So he imputes a perfect righteousness to us. Then he's imparting and weaving and working into us transformation. We are being transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. But as he communes with us and loves us, Christ, Christ sees a finished result as the artist does when he comes to the stone and he envisages what Michelangelo, what, what sorry, King David or whoever he's sculpting, he sees it before he starts chipping away at it or he looks at the canvas and he knows what the person has to be in the finished result and he works towards that stage by stage. But in his mind, it's always there. Now, this is the way it is between Jesus and us. Um, when he is extolling her here, and he says she is beautiful. In verse 9, that we'll come to more fully next time. You have ravished my heart. You have unhearted me. You have overcome my heart, my sister, my spouse, with one of thine eyes, one chain of thy neck. How fair is thy love. And when, when, the, when God is... Um, saving us and working in us and communing with us and he gives us his son and we are united to his son there's there's a there's an accomplishment always um that's paramount to what he's done there um i feel like it's obvious to say to you that you should already know this but maybe that some of the most obvious things we need to hear when you, you know, because you're reformed, that he didn't save you and say, let's work on this and see, see how holy we can make you. He elected you seeing exactly the outcome, the holy outcome. He already knows what you'll look like in your glorified body. He already knows your distinct character of holiness in your perfected soul when he does perfect it. He knows that already. When Jesus comes in mercy and grace in the gospel and works with his bride who frequently falls away and who comes to the Lord's table with failure and sin and she comes to eat and drink with her king. Though sin matters greatly to him and he sees sin, if Ephesus doesn't love him anymore, he'll point it out. If Sardis is pretending to be alive, but she's as dead as a tomb, he will point it out. If Laodicea is so compromised and passionless that he finds it disgusting, he'll tell Laodicea. Most of these people were unbelievers who thought they were Christian. You aren't perfect, but if you are a humble repentant, contrite Christian who loves him and who doesn't like when you wander and you don't like the lack of power and insight and knowledge that you have and you want to grow in him, Jesus delights in that. He delights in it. It pleases him. You think he looked at Peter every day and said, I can't stand Peter. He's so annoying. All he does is fail me. No, he loved him. There came a big failure in his life and the Lord looked at him with a dove's eye, didn't he, across the hall of Annas 
And he looked at Peter, and he looked at him across uh, that breakfast on the Sea of Galilee. He looked at him, but it was a look that would melt the heart. Look at these believers. Of course, Jesus isn't looking at the truly contrite, poor in spirit believer and constantly back bringing his fist down and saying, why aren't you doing better? When you fail him and you do become lukewarm, that's serious. But if you realize it and you turn to him and come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. He will receive you. And as he's looking upon you, he doesn't say, um, as, as he looks at you, that entire process was rooted in eternity. So as I close, let me say this. Think about how Paul put it when he spoke about the purpose of God in that chain of redemption. And he said, he has predestined us, you and I, to be conformed to the image of his son. So there's the beauty, Romans 8. And he says, um, those whom he, let me read it properly, Romans 8. <coughs> Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, these he glorified. Now, um, it's always surprised me that he doesn't put sanctification in there. Right? It, it goes immediately from justification to glorification. We wouldn't want that. We'd say perseverance of the saints and let's have everything in there. But Paul says predestined, called, justified, glorified. Why? Because the ones, they're predestined to be perfect. They're predestined for a process of beautification. And the ones who have been justified are going to be glorified. That's you. That actually already belongs to you. You already possess it. So that's how Jesus, in coming to the table, says, Come, meet with me, um, be contrite, be repentant, examine yourself where you are you're on this pilgrimage with me serving me and you must arise from this table and keep going so you must meet him when he's near like this meet him at his table do soul work open your soul to him at the table let's not do these things quickly Let, let's not take wine and bread and then say here's our final psalm this is a high day and you are meeting with the king and you bring yourself before him and say no one else knows not even my spouse knows that exactly where i'm at lord bring yourself before him and he looks in imputed righteousness as he is imparting a righteousness to a final goal of perfection and trust in his love and seek from him that he would strengthen you by stimulating you with a, a fresh sight of the willingness of the blood shedding, of the willingness of the tearing of his body and his soul and his wrath bearing for you, that you would be redeemed and free from the penalty of the law so that you could be led by him day by day in more and more beautification. And that's what it all is. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. Our catechism says that, right? It's we, we, we repent and so on and we endeavor after new obedience. That's what this is all about. This is a strengthening ordinance. And it's, it's an ordinance in which his love is displayed um, in the elements that he himself appointed on that night that he sat and he loved those 11 men. Um, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them until the end. And he expressed so much love to them in that moment. They had all the same imperfections that you and I have, those 11. 
They were fallen men uh, who had not yet learned full humility or contriteness and who had impurities. But you're coming to the table. Let it be a real meeting and think upon these three aspects of the beauty that he's given uh, as you're there. May God bless uh, these meditations on his word uh, this afternoon. And may he work these things into our very hearts and souls. If you're able to stand, let's stand uh, to pray. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we, we ask that you would do that work, even now. Um, we know that in all spiritual exercises and the fruits of the spirit of our character, weakness can come in and we need to develop in all of these graces in our prayers, in our knowledge of you, in our grace and love to one another, in our wisdom, in our self-control, in our peace, in our joy, in our service to you, in our zeal, in our thanksgiving, in our contentments, in our bodily and sexual purity in our words that would build up and not be corrosive words that would be chosen well like good news from a far country our delight in your day but how we utilize all seven days all seven are consecrated to thee one especially in utter holiness for worship and growth and corporate kingdom gathering. But every day of the week should say holiness unto the Lord upon it. Our homes should have that etched. Our hearts, our affections, our wills, our demeanor. Lord, you know each soul here. We pray that for all those who are thine in spirit and in truth and in repentance and faith all who have that spark of living faith pray that the spirit would work in them bring them into conformity <coughs> with the son of God bring forth the fruit of the spirit in their lives Put to death the work of the flesh. All the intrusions and machinations of the evil one to mar thy work. O oh God, do this work in your people. Any among us who have not yet believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who have not yet embraced that faith for themselves, faith and belief and trust in the only Savior in his death and resurrection. We ask that, whether old or young, that you would strive with them and reveal yourself to them. We pray that even the preparation for the Lord's table would be used by you to this end. We pray that the sight of your sacrament, that... Christ chose wisely that it would be a visible representation of his work. We pray that witnessing that would be used by you to the salvation of souls. Be with each family then this week where there is physical pain and medical difficulty. Alleviate, O oh God, where it is your will. Give grace when we must suffer to grow and deepen in the roots of the only things that truly matter. Work in families and marriages, in our children. We sung earlier that we pray the beauty of the Lord would be upon us and our children. 
Oh, Lord. We long for more of that. The beauty of what arises from your justification. And the beauty of a washed and dynamic and transformed soul that is Christ word. So meet us, O Lord, even for the rest of this evening. Pour out your Holy Spirit. May he speak constantly to our souls. Work in us piece by piece. That sin would be banished from us. And that your beauty would rest upon us. Your power and presence. Oh, that we would know your presence. Please, Lord, be pleased to grant it to us. The devil would do much to hinder us. Our flesh would do much to hinder us. In our prayers, in our seeking of you, in our delight in you, in our sense and experience of what it is to commune with you. Oh, grant us, as you granted this week, um, beloved, in this song, when she sought you and in her own strength could not find you, she turned round a corner and there you were. For you sought her out. Oh God, when we have foolishly left the door latched, as Christ knocked upon it, and we arise and open, and he has gone. Oh Lord, we pray that he would come and that we would know what it is by faith and by the Spirit to stand face to face with the Son of God, to know him and to say to him, my beloved is mine and I am his. Oh, show us the love of Jesus, how free it is, how forgiving it is, how saving and how protecting, how much stronger than our own. It is the foundation upon which our love can only rest. O oh Lord, show us thy love in Jesus Christ. We ask it all in his name, for his sake. Amen.